The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight as Putin's army advances toward Kiev, doubling down on taking the capital by opening up new fronts overnight. Per a senior U.S. defense official, Russian troops could be just 10 miles from the city center. Much of what we're seeing on the ground indicates that the Russians are indeed circling in. On Thursday, a stunning firefight between Russian and Ukraine forces. With the region shattered by constant shelling. There's a constant sound of artillery and shelling going on, and you can see the devastation that some of the attacks have already had. We know, according to the locals here, that the Russians are only a few kilometers down the road, and this is the constant backdrop. We're just waiting for victory, for everything to be good again, she says, and trying not to cry. Putin may have miscalculated the Ukrainian resistance, but that seems to have only intensified his resolve. Two weeks in, Ukraine is unrecognizable, pummeled by a barrage of shelling, rocket assaults and airstrikes. This is the town east of Kiev, demolished after a missile strike. In the northwest, explosions in the city of Lutsk. This is unusual because they had not been striking in western Ukraine. Russia has also attacked Dnipro in central Ukraine for the first time. With their homeland reduced to rubble, Ukrainians are running for their lives. The U.N. says more than 2.5 million refugees have left the country, making the dangerous journey in freezing temperatures, many of them forced to separate from loved ones who stayed behind to fight. Their fate, even their immediate one, is unknown. Here's a refugee in Lviv whose parents remained in the capital. And I know this is all uncertain times, but do you, do you have any sort of plan for the next days, weeks, months? I don't have plans. I don't know how to make plans because we have only today. We don't have tomorrow now. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. In a video late today, Ukrainian President Zelensky said the Russians have abducted the mayor of Melitopol. That is a city in southeastern, in southeastern Ukraine. Zelensky called the mayor's capture a crime against a person, as well as a crime against Ukraine and democracy itself. As these crimes escalate, world leaders are desperate to crack the puzzle over Putin's endgame. Meanwhile, Russia's disinformation war continues on American shores. Today, Russia accused the U.S. at the United Nations of supporting a non-existent biological weapons program in Ukraine, a claim the U.S. ambassador flatly denies. On the territory of Ukraine, there was a network consisting of at least 30 biological laboratories. The goal is to study the possibility of spreading particularly dangerous infections using migratory birds. I will say this once. Ukraine does not have a biological weapons program. We're not going to let Russia get away with lying to the world are staining the integrity of the Security Council by using this forum as a venue for legitimizing Putin's violence. To be clear, this claim was vehemently rejected by the majority of U.N. member states who warned 
that Moscow may be pushing disinformation as a prelude to its own use of such weapons. Joining me now is former CIA director John Brennan. Dmitry Gurin, a Ukrainian parliament member, and Jack Crosby, a Rolling Stone correspondent who has just returned from reporting in Ukraine. I don't even know where to go from here. Um, I, I am going to start with you, um, John Brennan, because, you know, the misuse and abuse of the United Nations Security Council to put forward a preposterous claim that the United States is using migratory birds to spread chemical munitions somehow. This is it is at once farcical and stupid and, and incredibly frightening. At this point, I'm not sure why Russia is allowed to present in the United Nations Security Council. What do you make of this, of all of this, this insane pr- uh, presentation at the UN today? Well, Joy, there's no explanation or rationale for Putin's war against Ukraine. And therefore, I think the Russians will continue to make these looters ludicrous claims that Ukraine had posed a threat to Russia, that Ukraine and the United States are planning to carry out such uh, biological chemical attacks. Uh, And that's because they really are defenseless in terms of the explanations about what's going on. It, It is very difficult right now to estimate how many Ukrainians and Russians have been killed as a result of Putin's war, but I'm sure it's well in excess of 10,000. And so therefore, it appears as though Putin is going to continue to double down and he's going to make counter charges against Ukraine and the West, NATO, the United States, again, as a way to uh, pass disinformation to his people as well as to the world. But I think everybody can see through these Russian lies. Mr. Uh, Gurin, um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. I want to and and I almost apologize for making you have to listen to this, but I want you to hear this is Russia's um, ambassador to the United Nations. This is a back and forth between himself and our ambassador, the United States ambassador, over something we all can see. We are not fools and idiots. We can see what they're doing. But here he is attempting to have a repartee with the U.N. ambassador over whether or not they're killing civilians. Take a look. We are dismayed by the dirty campaign to blame us for intentionally shelling a civilian uh, You are accusing us of propaganda and fake, whilst ignoring a huge number of fakes which are being churned out in Ukraine and in the West. I know that you expect me to re- respond, but we're not going to give any more airtime to the lies that you're hearing today. Is beneath this council. And there's only one aggressor here, and that is Russia. Mr. Gurin, you are an MP uh, in, in Ukraine. I, I, am, I just need to allow you to respond to the, the Russian ambassador attempting to claim that the images of horror that we're seeing, the killing of children, the shelling of hospitals, the shelling of schools, the crying children, the hungry children and women running for their lives, that they're all fakes. Your thoughts? I'm from Mariupol. I lived there 15 years. My parents are 67, my mother and uh, my father 69. Every weekend I talked with them around an hour, but not tomorrow. I haven't heard from them for five days. The only thing I know two days ago, they were alive. There is uh, 20 Fahrenheit degrees at night. There is no electricity, heating, water, gas, and mobile network. It's not possible to restore communications because shelling never stops. My school, my university, and nursery hospital building where I grew up and all and every building around, all of this, these 15 years of my life are destroyed. All of this is not a military infrastructure. 
day and night, twice per hour, airplane drops a bomb on residential districts of Mariupol. And bodies really lay on the streets, and there are mass graves in the city. My heart is breaking every minute when I think that I'm warm and I have breakfast, and my parents live in a basement, melt snow for water, cut trees. I cleaned as a child and prepare food and open fire. All the exits from Mariupol now hardly mined, and those who try to escape the city get killed. Russians say it's not true, but it wasn't, if it wasn't true, my parents would be with me now. 350,000 people in Mariupol sits in a mousetrap inside hardly mined fields and roads, and these people doesn't have food anymore. This war started two weeks ago, like an ordinary war, army against army, and all of the world saw how Ukrainians fought and resisted. You helped us with weapons, sanctions, money, and you can't imagine how grateful we are. But situation completely changed. Putin decided if I can beat you on a battlefield, if you all resist, we will kill you all. And last week, it's not a war anymore. It's mass murdering. There are more killed civilians last week than soldiers during all the war. Russian prisoners say they have permission to kill civilians from their command. Refugees from European Bucha who exited yesterday. They testify that Russian soldiers kill people for fun. I just, I'm sending you right now to a channel video published by our police today where infantry fighting vehicles shoots a car of people with disabilities as a close range. All the humanitarian corridors to Mariupol are blocked. No food, no water, no medicine. And we see clearly that Putin's goal in Mariupol is hunger. Today I talk with people, I address people of America. I talk to people of America with people of the strongest country in the world. It's not possible that we all allow one mad maniac to starve 350,000 people because he just wants to. You can't say we didn't know because you know now. And this death will be on our hands and on your hands and on Mr. Biden's hands. All the world united around Ukraine now. And if we all cannot do it together, what do we can at all? And I address people of America, please call your senator, call your congressman. Ask them if the blood of Ukrainian people, is it red enough? Ask them why the all strongest nations altogether cannot stop the hunger in the middle of Europe. How can we, how can we evacuate people from Mariupol? If we really we cannot, we, Ukraine, we will beat Russians on the battlefield. Please help us save our children and our parents and pray for mine with me. We are praying with you. And it's, it is heartbreaking. And, you know, Jack Crosby, do we know you are a journalist who's been um, back and forth uh, to Ukraine and seen this firsthand? You are the independent observer that we expect and, and, and pray for journalists to be. Um, number one, do you know any news uh, of this kidnapped mayor? Number one. Number two, tell us what you've seen. I, I don't have any news or new information on the on the kidnapped mayor. Um, I think there are many parts of Ukraine um, right now that, you know, as described, are, are communications blackouts um, where people have not heard from family members, um, where, you know, people can't. I, I myself can't uh, can't reach sources. A, a driver that I had in Kharkiv hasn't uh, responded to me in a couple of days. Um, you know, I, I've, I, I just go by, I hope sometimes that he sees the messages on WhatsApp, but uh, you, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to really, um, 
grapple with that. There, there, there are parts of the country now that are that are completely closed off. So I, I don't have anything uh, new on the mayor um, as far as what I've seen. Um, you know, yeah, I just, I just want to reiterate what was said. Um, these. Uh, these attacks are not on military infrastructure. Um, in the early days of the war, um, any kind of violence taking place near urban areas is going to bleed into civilian populations. Um, you know, there are always going to be casualties in war that were not intended. That's that's not what we're seeing here. Um, that's that's not what the Russian campaign is now, and that's not what it's been for for many days. And I think that the images that we've all seen out of Mariupol, out of Kharkiv, out of the outskirts of Kiev, out of cities like Volnovaka, um, out of cities like Irpin, you know, all of these make that extremely clear. Um, and I think the only people in the world that aren't seeing these images um, are are people in Russia uh, who who are being prevented from seeing them um, by mass censorship by the government there. John Brennan, I, I have to say this, uh, you know, my father was, he's passed away now, but he was from the Congo. The United States, when they decided that Patrice Lumumba wasn't good enough to be the George Washington of the Congo, made sure he was quite gone. You look at Iran, when we decided we didn't like Mossadegh, that was the end of him. The United States decided we didn't want Saddam Hussein, that was the end of him. I think for Americans to look helplessly while we watch these people slaughtered, it, it, it feels like we shouldn't be helpless. Um, you, as somebody who was the head of an agency that has incredible power, incredible reach into the entire world, isn't there something we can do? Because when we wanted to do it, and when there were people we thought were, were, were not fit to run a country, we did it. And so I think it's hard for Americans to accept that we can't do anything. Um, your thoughts? It's very difficult to um, accept that thought. Uh, we can do some things, but as President Biden said today, that if we were to engage militarily, it would be World War III. But I must say, listening to the Ukrainian parliamentarian, who my heart breaks for him, his family, and all the Ukrainians, um, surely we're going to be able to put a stop to this at some point. But as he pointed out, there are just too many innocents who are dying at the hands of the mass murderer that Putin is. And so I think we can really need to work together to try to find some way to stop this Russian war machine from destroying a beautiful country and the people in it. But uh, like you, Joy, I, I, I feel helpless. But at the same time, I think uh, the Biden administration is trying to uh, thread a needle here uh, to do what they can for Ukraine, but without leading to a larger war that could engulf uh, many more countries and lead to much greater devastation. But until we can stop this, I think the entire world is looking upon Ukraine with great sadness. And so, uh, again, I just hope that we're going to be able to turn this around soon. But there's no way that I think Putin is going to change course unless he is forced to by some um, overriding power. You know, I think for the people in Ukraine, people like Dmitro Gurin, it already is World War Three. That's the problem. It's already World War Three for them. That's the problem. Uh, John Brennan. I think, I think it's already World War Three for you. You yes. just don't. You just don't understand where is your line. Is it yes, hungering three hundred fifty thousand people in Mariupol, or is bomb drop, dropped on nursery house in, in Warsaw? That's your question. Or tactical nuke, and we will see next week's all of this. So decide where is your line.
Amen. Um, I, I cannot argue with the thing that you have said, sir. Uh, John Brennan, Demetrio Gurin, praying for you and for your family and for your country. Jack Crosby, thank you very much, sir. Still ahead on the readout, more economic fallout for Russia. As the U.S. and its allies announce new sanctions and move to suspend normal trade relations, how, how will Putin respond? Plus, as Republicans backpedal like mad to try to shift the blame, a quick reminder of how Trump and his allies helped to set the stage for this tragic violence that we're seeing today. Ambassador, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, who found herself in the middle of Trump's scheme to extort a foreign ally, joins me later. And Chef Jose Andres will tell us how he and his colleagues are managing to serve 100 50,000 meals to Ukrainian refugees every day. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Putin is an aggressor. He is the aggressor. And Putin must pay the price. He cannot pursue a war that threatens the very foundations, which he's doing, the very foundations of international peace and stability, and then ask for financial help from the international community. That was President Biden after he called for the U.S. to revoke Russia's most favored nation status, which would downgrade Russia as a trading partner and open the door to damaging new tariffs on Moscow. Hours later, the Treasury Department unveiled yet another round of sanctions targeting the wife and two children of Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, as well as another Putin ally, an oligarch, 11 members of the Duma and 10 members of Russia's second largest bank, VTB. On Thursday, a cornered Putin endorsed a plan to nationalized foreign-owned businesses in the wake of their mass exodus. Since the start of the invasion, the Russian ruble has lost roughly 40 percent of its value, and experts warn that Russia will eventually run short of imported food, clothing, and other goods. The cracks are starting to show. The Daily Beast is reporting that two well-known pro-Putin TV pundits appeared on an unquestionably propagandistic show and acknowledged the impact of the sanctions. They called for a stop to military action. In incredibly blunt terms, one of them said the invasion threatens the change of public opinion in Russia, the destabilization of our power structures with the possibility of a full destabilization of the country and a civil war. Joining me now is Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza. Um, thank you so much for being here. It has been many, many years that we have been having conversations about um about Russia and about the ways in which the United States has tried to deal with Russia. Multiple um, U.S. administrations, going back to George W. Bush, to uh, President Obama, you know, George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and said he saw his soul. President Obama tried the reset button. You know, and then Trump obviously tried best friends, right? That, that strategy, none of it's worked. 
does it what do you make of the current administration's attempts to try to push Putin back? Because it seems that friendship, difficult, nothing helps. Nothing has changed him. And we did talk about it for years. And, and what's really enraging is that, you know, people have warned about this. Yeah. Uh, Russians have warned about this. Boris Nemtsov, who was a Russian opposition leader who was murdered on Putin's order seven years ago, was so outspoken and so vocal about it. And the thing is, we know from history how the appeasement of dictators ends. It always ends the same way. It's happened so many times. And, you know, Putin started initially with going after Russian civil society and Russian independent media and his political opponents. Then he turned to aggression outwards. I mean, this is, of course, not his first war of aggression, right? There was Georgia, there was Syria, there was the initial attack on Ukraine back in 2014. And every time the West swallowed it. And every time the leaders of the world's democracies continued to shake his hand and invite him to international summits and, as you just quoted, you know, look into his eyes and declare resets and so on. And this is where we are today with a large-scale land war in the middle of Europe with war crimes committed in the middle of Europe. You saw the bombing of, of a maternity war, for God's sake, a couple of decades ago. This is, this is heartbreaking. And, and what's even more heartbreaking is the fact that this was avoidable. And, and I have to say that if... One-tenth of those sanctions that were imposed over the past two weeks had been imposed a decade ago, as we were calling for those high-level personal targeted sanctions, not against the Russian people, but against those oligarchs and kleptocrats that oil the wheels of the Putin machine and that have all their holdings in Western banks and Western financial system. Had those sanctions been put in place a decade ago, we would not be here today. And the thing is, I mean, we don't have to speculate about what Putin is capable of. He did it to Aleppo leveled Aleppo. He did it in Chechnya. Just brutal. That's how he came to power. Exactly. And the idea that, I don't know, I I, I do wonder if if the, the, the ability of, including Western media, let's be honest, and Western governments to look away at those conflicts made him feel, okay, I can get away with brutality. I, I am still surprised that he thought in his mind that he could get away with doing this to Ukraine. It seemed insane to think that he would do it, but he's done it. But on the other hand, if you get away with everything else, if, you know, you can imprison opponents, you can murder opponents, you can rig elections, you can muzzle independent media and, and nobody cares. You can then go uh, attacking other countries and nobody really cares. I mean, beyond some lip service, right? You feel as if you can do anything. And, and this is what he led us. But, you know, as they say, better late than never. Sure. And finally, we are seeing some firm action against the oligarchs, against those, you know, high-ranking abusers that some of them you just listed, the, the new sanctions uh, announced just today. Uh, we are also, very importantly, finally seeing, uh, you know, Western leaders calling a spade a spade. Yeah. And, you know, for such a long time, the West pretended that Vladimir Putin was a legitimate and democratically elected leader. Obviously, he isn't. He's never no, been. Uh, but for so many years, the West pretended he was. And it's important to see that change as well. There's a really important congressional initiative here in Washington. It's called House Resolution 806, a bipartisan initiative introduced by Republicans and Democrats together, which uh, essentially provides for de-recognition of Vladimir Putin by the United States in the same way as the U.S., for example, refuses to recognize Maduro in Venezuela Mm. or Lukashenko in Belarus. And Putin is just as illegitimate, just as authoritarian as they are. And so it's important that people are finally beginning to say that two plus two equals four. It will bankrupting Russia because, you know, we were just talking about this in the break before we started on. I mean, he has destroyed two countries. He is destroying Ukraine, but he is destroying Russia. The fact that you do have people that are on a really pro-Putin sort of network saying, oh, this is a terrible idea, that ordinary Russians can't, I mean, it isn't the biggest deal in the world, can't go to McDonald's, can't get Netflix, but they're going to feel it economically. Does this wind up ultimately destabilizing him? 
And taking him potentially out of power? Is that possible? There's no question about Of course. And if you look at the history of Russia uh, over the past 200 years, you will see that it's very often failed wars of aggression that lead to political change at home. This is how it was after the Crimean War, after the Russo-Japanese War, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and so on. This has happened time and time again. And you're absolutely right. In the last two weeks, the Putin regime undid 30 years of economic progress right. since the end of the Soviet, Soviet Union. You know, the last time I saw empty food shelves in Moscow until last week was when I was a child in the Soviet Union. I saw that again a few days ago. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing all those leading companies leave. We are seeing the, you know, sort of the banks ceasing operations. People are no longer able use, to use their credit cards. Uh, people are losing their job. There will be economic calamity as a result of this. And there's nobody to blame for this except Vladimir Putin. Uh, and yes, there's actually growing um, understanding among many people in Russia that this is going to be Putin's last war. This is yet another one in a long yeah. list of military adventures that he's engaged in. But you know what? He's really overstepped this time. Even for those Western appeasers and Western enablers mm -hmm. who've been willing to turn a blind eye for such a long time, this is too much. This is a step too far. And so, yes, I do believe that this will be the last war the Putin regime conducts. The question, of course, is the price. And I don't mean monetarily. I mean in terms of human lives yeah. uh, and the time. It doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. Sure. Uh, uh, but you know what? I think... Uh, Today, we're seeing the end of the Putin regime much more clearly than we did even a month ago. You know what? I'll take it. At this point, it's so depressing and so awful that if this is the end of, of, of him and people like yourself can go back to a free Russia, a free Russia and a free Ukraine, that's a pretty damn good deal. I'll take it. And that's going to happen. And hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later before too many more people die or wind up uh, ex, you know, as refugees. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And we haven't been able to see one another and shake hands for a long time, so it is just good to see you. Good to see you, too. Cheers. Thank All you. right. Vladimir Karamurza. Thank you. Up next. Trump and his Republican allies would like you to forget the role that they played in setting the stage for Putin's war, but we are not going to let them. Former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch, who was fired by and then testified against Donald Trump, joins me next. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. There are two things that we have learned about Donald Trump from his campaign and his administration. First is his strange and solicitous admiration for Vladimir Putin, which is well documented. And second is his apparent obsession with weakening Ukraine. Starting back in 2016, we saw the Trump campaign strip the Republican platform of a provision supporting military aid for Ukraine. Trump's cronies then pushed for a so-called peace plan that would have dismembered Ukraine's territory and lifted sanctions on Russia. Then Trump spread the laughable conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine and not Russia that interfered in the 2016 election. And last but certainly not least, Trump used his office to extort Ukraine's government, withholding congressionally approved military assistance in exchange for a hit job on his political opponent, Joe Biden. Put simply, Trump held Ukraine's security hostage for his own personal gain. 
He treated President Zelensky not as an ally, but as a pawn in his bid for re-election. And it got him impeached for the first time back in 2019. Now a key witness in that impeachment, who was herself a victim of Trump's scheme, is speaking out. In her timely new memoir, Lessons from the Edge, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, details her 33 years in the Foreign Service, including the grueling smear campaign that prompted her firing at the hands of Donald Trump. That episode was one of the many indignities that Trump brought upon the United States, which no doubt weakened Ukraine and emboldened Russia. And as as Ambassador Ivanovich said at the time, Ukraine deserved our unwavering support. Supporting Ukraine is the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do. If Russia prevails and Ukraine falls to Russian dominion, we can expect to see other attempts by Russia to expand its territory and its influence. Former Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure. So, uh, you know, and, and I wonder as you look at particularly the way things that are, the things that are happening now uh, to Ukraine, were you ever able to wrap your mind around why Donald Trump himself and his administration were so against Ukraine, why they seemed to have it in for Ukraine? Were you able to ever to sort of get your mind around why that was? Not really, to tell you the truth, because it was it was all so bizarre. I think that he, frankly, didn't really think that much about Ukraine, but he thought a lot about Russia as a great power. And he sort of accepted, I think, Putin's view of uh, Ukraine as not really being a real country. And if it was a country, it was sort of a weaker country and therefore not not worthy of his of his attention. Yeah. And, you know, as people will remember your name uh, as the person who's associated with the phrase, she's going to go through some things because they wanted to fire you and essentially give your portfolio to really Giuliani and like sort of make him in charge of, of policy. At the time, did you see what he was doing as part of sort of a bigger picture of a, of a big pro-Russia move on the part of the United States? Did you anticipate things like the idea that he wanted to get out of NATO? Was any of that in your mind at that time? So, what was happening to me uh, was it was all around me, and I could feel, um, you know, that something was going on. Uh, but and because people were telling me, especially Ukrainians, um, senior level Ukrainians, you better watch out uh, because um, there are people here and there are people in the United States that are working together to get you removed. And then I would call back to the State Department and say, "What's going on? You know, is there is there a problem with what I'm doing? No, no, everything's fine." And so I figured, you know, it's just that low level kind of uh, rumor that is always kind of circling uh, any capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wasn't completely aware of all of the things going on around me. But some of the other things that you said. Um, President uh, Trump's well, uh, well-known and um, outspoken uh, feelings about NATO. I mean, that, it was quite clear that he felt that NATO was, um, you know, not a good institution. That uh, the other allies were taking the U.S. for a ride, and that we were supporting them in ways that we shouldn't be. And I think, you know, I've heard people close to the president, president from his administration saying that if he had had a second term, he would no doubt have pulled the U.S. out of NATO. Yeah. And, I, and I wonder about that, too, because you have a lot of sort of the meme. And I know that, um, you know, you were on with Nicole, with Nicole Wallace, the lover. And so, of course, I watch the show. I watch her show every day. And, you, and she did ask you this question that everyone is sort of asking and sort of throwing mm-hmm. out there. Would this have happened if Donald Trump had been president? You know, and, and, and my kind of thought on it is that, well, we wouldn't have had to. Right. I mean, he would have. Or, or that Putin wouldn't have had to because yeah. Trump would have given him Ukraine. Is, is that your sense of it as well? Well, I, 
I think he was. Uh, I think that President Putin was getting what he needed um, out of the Trump administration. So you know, we were. I think. I think on a path to leaving NATO. So that uh, you know, the NATO without the United States is probably not a security alliance that is going to last yeah. very long. And so I think that would have addressed many of um, Putin's alleged concerns. Mm. I think that what we're seeing now is about. In a certain sense, it's about Russia's security, but it is about many other things, um, including um, Putin's obsession with Ukraine, his belief that it's not a real country, his desire to recreate the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, um, his his need to sort of establish himself in a positive way before the 2024 presidential elections. It's about a lot of things. Yeah. And it's also about... Um, in my opinion, tearing down the international order that has served us so well since World War II. Absolutely, which seemed, for some reason, Trump seemed to want to do as well. Uh, take the measure. I know that you, you, you do not crisscross with the Zelensky administration, um, I don't believe. I think maybe just before, after you left is when Zelensky came in. But take the measure for us of this man, yeah. because this— it, I am quite sure this is not what he expected when he went from being a comedian playing a sort of pretend president on in a comedy show to being president. And then the first thing that happens to him is he an attempted bribery um, by the United States president. There are these great pictures of him sort of sitting there looking like, my God, I'm sitting next to this <laughs> moron. And what am I supposed to do about it? Um, and now this. Take the measure for us of, yeah. of this man. So I did meet um, Zelensky a number of times when he was running for president. Yeah. But by the time he, he became president, I was no longer in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously he's a really funny guy. He's very talented. Um, and um, he also is um, the um, architect of a huge um, media empire. And he's very proud of the fact that, you know, his talent created that and um, the executive skills that... that um, that, that produced that, that, that empire. I think that um, uh, Zelensky, as president, uh, ran into many of the same challenges that some of his predecessors ran into. But I think he was trying, and he was making some progress, not as much progress, perhaps, as um, others may have wanted. Um, but but with, this, with the invasion of Russia, uh, or Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think that he has grown into the moment. I think you are seeing somebody whose um, masterful communication skills have really come to the fore. Yeah. And he has inspired his countrymen, and he's inspired the world. It is remarkable. And so I think he has really met the moment yes. in a way that um, I wouldn't necessarily have expected, but that I really admire. Yeah. It's the difference between someone who is you know, sort of naturally funny and interesting and can do comedy, mm -hmm. and somebody like Trump, who people wrote his lines for him, and mm -hmm. it's not natural. Um, let, let's go to just my final question to you, which is this. And, you know, and, when you're a diplomat and you deal with a country, you sort of, mm -hmm. you obviously develop an affinity for it. Mm -hmm. I wonder yes. what your thoughts are for Ukraine. This it, is, it is just horrifying um, to think that um, everybody I know and, you know, a country of 44 million people has been brought to this by the evil doing, I mean, there's no other word for it, of one man, uh, that um, not only are they being targeted mercilessly, women, children, men, um, not only that, but, you know, perhaps there might be a chem bio attack yeah. or, and, you know, people are even talking about nuclear strikes because... Um, President Putin is using the, the 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 status of Russia as a nuclear power so loosely. It is it is really horrifying, yes. and 
I think that it's important that we not allow Putin to set the conditions for this war. We need to think about how we can continue to support Ukraine and how we can do it in the smartest way possible, mm -hmm. but also the strongest way possible so that we deter Putin. Marie Ivanovich, uh, thank you so thank much you. for your service to the United States. Thank you for being here and being my guest. Uh, and uh, I wish you well. And I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, much for having Cheers. me. Yeah, likewise. Cheers. Thank you. We'll be right back. The U.N. now says that more than two and a half million Ukrainians have fled their country. The majority have crossed into Poland, and the influx of vulnerable women and children brings with it concerns about keeping them safe in their new environment. With me now is NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber in Krakow, Poland. Ellison? Joy, as more and more people are forced to flee their homes in Ukraine, children are having to sleep on the ground at train stations in bigger cities in Poland because they're struggling to keep up with the demand. What we are hearing from local officials and volunteer groups is that there needs to be more organization from the top down, the federal government down. They need more help to make sure people are getting the resources necessary to survive this difficult time in their lives. They say right now most of the efforts, it's a volunteer ad hoc effort when it comes to aid. They say that's not sustainable. Plus, when it comes to such vulnerable people, women and children, they say shelter options, they have to be vetted. Listen. From border crossings to city centers like Krakow, we have seen a lot of volunteer organizations set, stepping up, trying to help refugees. How much coordination has there been between groups like yours and the Polish government? Um... Unfortunately, I would say the Polish government stepped back, so they are doing a lot of PR job. They are going to the border and showing that they are doing some stuff, but they are not visible here in Kraków. Right now I can manage, I don't know, like I can give uh, safe aid to 1,000 uh, people per day, but we have like 120,000 people in Kraków right now. Yeah. So I, I cannot create the system. I'm not a, you know, Prime Minister of or President of European Union. I'm just a small NGO here in Krakow. We need money. Uh, we need people who will organize this relocation process. If you know any politicians from your own hometown uh, or your state, uh, talk with them. If you can accept like one plane, we can organize it from Krakow to your state. Wow, Ellison Barber, thank you. Coming up next, Jose Andres joins us from Ukraine with an update on his inspiring efforts to help feed refugees. We'll be right back. As Ukraine's humanitarian crisis grows, world-renowned chef and humanitarian Jose Andres is once again heeding the call for help, providing food and comfort to those in need. His nonprofit, World Central Kitchen, was on the ground within hours of Putin's invasion setting up mobile kitchens at border crossings to feed weary refugees. And now inside Ukraine, he's partnering with local restaurants and caterers to get food and supplies to cities under siege. They've served hundreds of thousands of meals so far, averaging as many as 150,000 a day. And Chef Jose Andres joins me now. It is such a privilege to be able to talk with you. Um, and I just want to hear you talk. Uh, I, I've got here on my notes that you, World Central Kitchen, has set up kitchens in Poland and Romania, Moldova, Hungary, Slovakia. What have you seen? What are people telling you? Tell me what you've seen. 
Well, uh, we've seen the images of people, uh, Ukrainians and many other nationalities, use taking on a car, getting on a bus, getting on a train, trying to escape the mayhem created by this uh, war that doesn't make any sense. So the stories, let's put it this way, every person, every woman, every children, every one of them have a story. When you see a child that as you are giving him a plate of hot food, the only thing he's telling you is, my dad stay behind. When you see in that same border that people are escaping war and mayhem, you see young Ukrainians and other nationalities, including Americans, that they are crossing into Ukraine to join um, this defense of, of the country. And, and, and the stories keep multiplying themselves. I've seen people giving the best of them, like when I arrived in Poland, I would say that every single Polish in the border, uh, firefighters, uh, retired military, um, students, teachers, they all did whatever it, it had to happen to provide relief to these Ukrainians coming into their country. Inside Ukraine, where I am right now, um, more of the same. Uh, it's like in the worst of moments, the best of humanity show up. Uh, everyone here that I see, they want only one thing, to take care of those women, of those children that are suffering the horrors of a war that doesn't make sense in the 21st century. Yeah, and, you know, thank you for pointing out, I mean, this is a... a, a giant, enormous movement of women and children um, from their homes, and sometimes with just one little bag or one little backpack. And the idea of children not knowing where they're going to sleep, what they're going to eat, is so heartbreaking. Um, when you when you think about the fact that you've done this all over the world, you've done this in wartime situations, but in this case, is it different that it is really kids? You're feeding kids for the most part. And their moms. No, I mean, uh, uh, obviously, I don't have the exact data, but at one moment, it seems that there is one child for each adult. It's a massive, a massive movement of uh, of children. We've seen images of children alone with a phone number written in the back of their hand. So, if somebody finds them, to call their family to to tell them he's fine. Imagine what their families have to go through to put sometimes children alone into those buses or those trains. Um, uh, this is what is really uh, heartbreaking. We saw the bombing of a hospital uh, in the south, if I'm right, in Mariupol, where many children uh, die. Again, I hope uh, everybody's going to be speaking up, not only the citizens of Europe, but the citizens of the world saying, yeah. there's no way that we can go through this war uh, without speaking very loudly that we cannot allow uh, Putin to get away with what is a massacre of biblical proportions. So the organization like ours, I wish I had to activate. We're not the only people feeling here. Uh, as I'm telling you, it's churches. Everybody that um, can do something is doing something. What well, Wilson Kitchen is just trying to bring some organization through these four or five countries that we are right now feeding uh, well welcoming Ukrainians into the safety of those countries or well feeding as we are doing right now 
inside uh, Ukraine in multiple cities. And can I ask you, just logistically, you don't have to tell us every bit of it, but is it getting more difficult to actually get the food to be able to cook, um, given the fact that Russia is indiscriminately bombarding everything, everything, civilian infrastructure? Is it getting harder and harder to actually physically get the food to the people? Well, obviously, here in Lviv, we are, what I would say, far away from the front lines. But we are probably 400, 450 kilometers away, which seems far, but it's right there. These last 24 hours, we saw uh, during the evening and into the day that you will hear the sirens because it seems a missile or an attack was happening uh, somewhere. At the end, we had, during the day today, two attacks I will not say very close to Lviv, but this is the attacks that they've been closer to the West, closer to the Polish uh, border. And with that means uh, the door is, is touching in almost every city. This keeps going like this. So food obviously is an issue. We are trying to preposition food in places like Odessa. We are trying to preposition a lot of food in places like Lviv trying to prepare for the wars and hope for the best. And obviously we have partners in places like Kiev, restaurants that from the very beginning, they've been feeding women and children and elderly that they are scared and they are waiting in, in, in shelters or in tunnels or in basements when this shelling uh, never stops. Obviously in places like Kiev, even still, it's uh, food keeps coming with, I guess, the help of military and, and, and others in those cities that they're surrounded by, uh, by the Russians. Food is getting very difficult. We see what's happening in Mariupol. We see other cities that they've been for days, if not already for weeks, surrounded by the Russian troops. And where at the end, who suffers is always the same. The men and women, very often the voiceless, very often the poor, and yeah. we cannot allow this. Let's hope that food is not one of the problems people are going to be going through. And yeah. the very least, people as they are living, we're trying to make sure that we go along the way until they get to safety to make sure that in every stop, in every moment, food and water and other things will be available to, the, to them without any effort. Uh, God bless you, sir. Um, there, you know, people aspire to be a great man. Even better is to be a good man. You, sir, are both. Jose Andres, thank you. Thank you. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.